When I was growing up in Poland, I didn't know any people who were openly queer. It was a huge deal for me to go to Harvard and meet my first like lesbian couple. It's like, oh my gosh, it's okay. Hello and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the Yale English Department. I'm Steph Newell. Today I'm talking to Marta Figlerovich, who is Associate Professor of English and Associate Professor of Comparative Literature at Yale. Marta is the author of Flat Protagonists, A Theory of Novel Character, and also Spaces of Feeling, Affect and Awareness in Modernist Literature. Her many works of literary and cultural criticism have appeared in the Yale Review, publicbooks.org, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other print and online journals. Last month, in the face of Poland's anti-LGBTQ legislation, Marta, as Poland's first openly non-binary public intellectual, published an extended interview in Politika, the largest circulation Polish political weekly. The interview follows on her many previous essays, as well as radio, TV and digital media commentaries on Eastern European gender politics and norms. It's great to have you on the podcast, Marta. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell me a bit about your background? There's a lot to say, I suppose. I was born in Poland shortly before the Berlin Wall came down, and I stayed in Poland for a long time with a short hiatus when I went to Chicago, like many Polish people do. But then I realized I kind of really wanted to get out. And since the United States was where I had lived briefly as a child, it seemed like the place to go back to. And I managed to get a fellowship to get into college. And I went to Harvard. And then I went to Berkeley. And then I got a job here. So in some sense, it's been a straight line to Yale, meandering around the West Coast. You're very active on social media. You're a regular contributor to online magazines. Can you say a bit more about what draws you to social media and also what can and what cannot be expressed in different online environments? Well, when I was growing up in Poland, it was shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. We didn't really have Western things. Capitalism came in very slowly, including the Internet. So I lived basically without email, without much Internet access until I went to college, really. Well, I had some dial-up before, but it was kind of 10 or 15 years behind what my peers had in the United States. So I actually only got my first email address to find out if I got into Harvard Early Action because they said they would either mail me a letter or send me an email. And I was like, oh, I want to know. I want to like do the quicker thing. Um, so I set up an email account so they would email me. I think all of that, that experience of being in transition into new media and seeing them not just in that kind of paranoid way that is also not incorrect as the thing that surveils me, but also as a vital source of information and resources. I mean, I managed to get into an American college by going to internet cafes in Poland and finding out about, like, how do you apply? What is an SAT test? So I think I had always an ambivalent relationship to these media and a kind of building relationship. I was aware of what it felt like to become accustomed to them. So I, I think that's part of what draws me to them conceptually again, where I, I want to know how it's different to write something for an online magazine than a paper magazine. And then there's a way that um, that interest in the new media wraps right around through to ancient myths and the classics. Oh, yeah. You know, you wrote an essay for the Yale Review comparing memes with ancient genres and myths. And I'm really interested in that. I mean, could you say more about how memes operate mythologically? What were the connections that you made? The connection that I made was between meme culture and Roman pantomime, kind of the way that a meme kind of captures in a quick, abbreviated, kind of hyper-emotionalized form, something like a feeling or a state of being or a state of mind. 
that sort of resembles both what people found very interesting about Roman pantomime and works written around the Roman pantomime circle, like Ovid's Metamorphoses, whether or not they were actually inspired directly by the pantomime. So people, on the one hand, were fascinated by them as exemplar that you could nip out of the text very easily, relate to, and then put away or draw a picture about. But on the other hand, other people were very troubled by what they saw as the simplification of abstraction. And I think both in the creative flair and the creative energy of meme culture and in these potential dangers, there's a lot to be learned. Also, in terms of defamiliarizing the notion that we live in a very new world. That is one thing I always love to tell my students. I think a lot of what I do as a teacher is just remind them that history does not go forward. And that is not even true of technology, really, in the way that they think it does. Kind of instead, we kind of circle back to genres. Certain genres of expression become relevant again because we come back to a certain arrangement of audiences and publics. And the best way to understand what is happening right now is often to think about what does it remind me of in the past? Kind of not just on the superficial level, but on these deeper structural levels. Well, you recently published an extended interview in the Polish weekly, Politica, on the topic of Poland's anti-LGBTQ legislation. And could you tell us a bit more about your position as the country's first openly non-binary public intellectual? You know, what does it mean to occupy that position? Yeah, it, I'm I'm new to that position. I mean, I suppose I, I have been that privately, but especially in the wake of just how terribly LGBTQ communities are suffering in Poland. I felt precisely because I have the power of living abroad, of being a dual citizen, of being a professor at an Ivy League school, I should do something. And my friends in Poland, when I talked to them, said, well, actually, if you just talked about what it means to be non-binary and how you were actually a non-binary person in Poland for a long time before you moved to the United States and then began moving back and forth, even if it was not in the overt way that we're accustomed to, they thought that could make a difference just in the sense of narrating that phenomenology. What did you say to people then? Well, I was just, like a lot of the interview, I've written elsewhere in foreign affairs and other places about kind of the particulars of the legislation. But in this interview, I basically just talked about like what it's like to be genderqueer and have people chase you out of bathrooms or into bathrooms (laughs) or have people be confused about what gender you are and then really embarrassed when they can't guess it which happens obviously on both sides of the Atlantic. But I think when I was growing up in Poland, I didn't know any people who were openly queer in any matter, shape or form. And it was a huge deal for me to go to Harvard and meet my first like lesbian couple who were my proctors as a first year. And that just blew my mind. It's like, oh my gosh, you're having a functional life (laughs) and it's okay. So I think that was part of the point of the interview on the one hand too kind of say some things that had not been spoken about before in a kind of mainstream medium, but I'll, on the other hand, just to say it's it's okay. Do you think it was only possible to say those things from a position outside the country? Well, I think it was easier for me to do. And other people who are kind of identified as trans or queer kind of have spoken about their experiences in Polish media before, but it, it's fraught. And especially as an academic, given that Polish academia is being increasingly put under pressure by the right-wing government, it's, it's a scary thing to be affiliated with gender studies these days. Well, do you have a favourite piece of music? Can you tell us what it is? 
the piece of music that I thought about when you asked that question, Steph, was Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, and particularly the 1987 performance and performance recording. It's an early modern opera, which was one of the first pieces of music I listened to obsessively in college when I began to have an MP3 player and all of the aquatrimal that came with <laughs> kind of early digital music culture. And I would just walk around, listen to it, and I continue to be very fond of it and early modern music in general. Now, what's on the horizon for you? Have you got something coming up that excites you? I would love to be able to travel again, but that remains to be seen. But one thing I'm excited about is I recently completed an essay on Finnegan's Wake, which in many ways is one of those quintessential books that speak to my interests in their intersecting ways. And I'm looking forward to finishing that up and having that come out. Finnegan's Wake was one of those books I could never get in Poland and I always wanted to read. And one of the first books I took out as a first year from the Harvard Library and just read because I had been very impatient to get to it. Um, So it just feels like a nice cyclical thing where finally after like 15 years in this country I will be publishing something on this inscrutable thing. Thank you Marta and thanks for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia, class of 19 and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard the 1987 recording of Monteverde's L'Orfeo. Thank you.